Back when I was a junior at the University of Delaware, I devoted a column in the student newspaper to calling for the dismissal of the school's longtime men's soccer coach, Lauren Klein. The team, after all, was terrible and had been terrible for years. So damn it, wrote 20-year-old me, it was time for new leadership. Only, I'd never attended a Delaware soccer game. I never interviewed Lauren Klein or any of his players. And when the piece ran, and I heard that he was genuinely crushed and embarrassed, I should have cared. But I was young, and I was dumb, and I walked with a stupid strut, and nothing bothered me. Looking back, however, I consider it an all-time mistake. Lauren Klein had a wife. He had kids, a mortgage, car payments. This wasn't just a gig for him. It was his livelihood. Years and years later, I wrote Lauren Klein an apologetic letter, but never heard back. I don't blame him. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode stars Stephanie McCrumman, the Washington Post Pulitzer Award-winning writer whose recent story and exceptional work headlined the 31-day campaign against QAnon features the plight of an underdog congressional candidate and his month in hell. And I'm going to break it all down with Stephanie, piece by piece by piece, in a journalistic dissection. This is episode number 179. Let's sing some Yang. Dad, All right, well, Stephanie, first of all, every now and then on this show, on this show, I like to just deep, deep dive into a story. Like, take a story and deep, 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 deep dive into it. And I was on, um, I probably went to the Washington Post website, and I see this story, the 31-day campaign against QAnon. In Georgia, what happened when a nice guy named Kevin Van Ostel ran for Congress against a candidate known for his support of extremist conspiracy theories. And it's, I think it's freaking art. Man. I think it's, it's just a great, great story and a heartbreaking story about this guy who really wanted to do right. And there was this QAnon candidate who obviously is gaining a lot of steam in Georgia right now. She's going to win her congressional race. And this guy wanted to run against her. I love everything about this story. Everything. And I, I'm going to ask a basic question. How did this even come to you? So just to back up a little bit, my I don't have a beat per se. I'm on a national enterprise team at the Washington Post. And I tend to write long form narrative stories. So I roam around a lot. And we're just always jumping from one thing to the next. And, and so we got interested in this you know, sort of reluctantly uh, interested in QAnon uh, as, as we were reading more stories about how it was a, you know, wasn't really something to be dismissed. Um, it's how it's, it's, it seems to be growing and, uh, and so on. And so then we got interested in this, what was happening in the 14th Congressional District. Um, I say we, this is my editor and I, David Finkel is my editor. And we thought, you know, instead of writing about her and QAnon people, we thought, what, what is it like to be the person running against all of that? You know, a, a conspiracy theory. How do you even run against that? Um, is there anyone running? We didn't even know that there was anyone running. And so then, you know, we looked into it and sure enough, there was this guy, Kevin, and he had his, you know, little website up, his home, homemade website. And we just thought, okay, that's the story. The story is, who is he? And what is it going to be like for him? And so got him on the phone, you know, got his campaign folks on the phone, um, did a little bit of, um, you know, a couple of interviews, you know, by phone, and then just headed down there. And with the, with the intention that I would chronicle the campaign from his point of view. All right. So, I mean, he's gone through hell. 
Like he's gone yes. through hell and yes. it sucks. Everything is sucked. And I, I finished the story and I think, God, this guy's life just sucks. How do you convince a guy who's gone through hell, whose life sucks, who's, who has this crazy fringe conspiracy group sort of all over him as he was running to actually open up to you? Well, that is a, it's a really good question. And, and I approach it, you know, like all of these stories, my, you know, my approach is usually just to be very transparent. So you get down there and, you know, hopefully, you know, in this case, he's both an ordinary person, but he was in the process of becoming, you know, a a political candidate with a campaign team and everything. So, so it wasn't as simple as just talking to him. I had to also talk to his campaign people. Um, So I did. And I just explained what I wanted to do. I just, I said that, you know, I'm interested in you. I'm interested in how you all are thinking about this. I had a couple of interviews that were with Kevin when I first got down there that were probably conventional interviews where his press person was in the room and he was sort of going through his, you know, talking points and whatever. And I, and I had to tell the, you know, it was Ruth she's the deputy campaign manager, whatever. And I, and I remember saying, I don't want the talking points. I want to know how you all are coming up with the talking points. You know, I want to know, I want to know what you, what kind of conversations you all are having. And I think it's important. I think this campaign is important and, you know, I'm interested and, and here's how I work. You know, I'd like to, you know, they weren't really meeting in person. They were doing everything by zoom. And, and so I said, if it's, you know, if it's possible, what I'd like to do is just hang into, you know, hang around your zoom calls, um, as much as I possibly can. And if Kevin's doing any in-person events, of course, I would want to go with him. And so I was just basically transparent upfront about my intentions. And, um, and then it was up to them. Yeah. I also sent them some other stories I'd done in the past so that they had an idea of, um, you know, the kind of stories that I write. And then we just kind of, you know, they, fortunately, they, they agreed. Is it important to get Ruth out of the room? To get Ruth out of the room? Uh, that's a good question. Um, in this case, it, it, everyone had to be on board. So, you know, of course I wanted, Ke- I mean, presumably Kevin was ultimately the one that was going to decide he's the candidate. But as the story, you know, might've suggests, like his team was exerting more and more, pre- not pressure, but just control over, over the campaign. So, so in this case, um, normally, exactly. You don't want the handlers around. In this case, I was interested in the quote unquote handlers. I was interested in the consultants and the campaign people. So I did want their, I did want for them to understand as well what my intentions were journalistically. So um, I wanted them all to be on board with it because if one of them said no, then it was going to make the Zoom call awkward. And, you know, I just needed everyone to be uh, okay with me, you know, listening in. When, yeah. when you're working on a story like this, are you allowed to acknowledge to Kevin that the person he's running against is batshit crazy? Are you mm. allowed to sort of, God, that woman is insane. Like, are you, are you allowed those moments or no? Uh, uh, I guess I would try to uh, avoid those moments, you know, in in this case, it was sort of unnecessary for me to, (laughs) you know what I I mean? (laughs) The whole point was that they understood or were trying to wrap their hands around their opponent. So, yeah. So I don't, I don't, I guess I didn't even think about, you know, am I allowed or not allowed? I mean, I guess as, as a general rule, I, you know, I don't, I try to refrain from 
commentary, I guess. Anything that I would say, I want to ask them, like, what do you think about this? Or, you know, that kind of thing. I love this story. I really do. Yeah. I freaking love it. <laughs> um, do you actually, do you, do you, you do finish the story and do you think, oh, this is great. Or are you just like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, I usually, you know, with most stories, there's a point where I think, ah, oh, this is going to be, this could be a really great story like this, or this is a great story. And there's only one thing that could mess it up. And that's me. Right. <laughs> it's like the story is going to be, yeah, like it's out there in the world. It's a great story. So, um, so yeah, so usually I'm just hoping not to screw it up or to be able to translate its greatness into words. The reason I had you on this podcast is because what I really want to say is this story is great, except you screwed it up. You know, otherwise, oh, no. <laughs> there's, a, there's a point you wrote, you wrote, the time for rehearsing was over. The angry statement about Green had to post immediately, he said. I haven't taken a shower, Kevin said. I was going to the post office and, Kevin, take a moment, breathe, center yourself, Michael said. He took a moment, he breathed. And soon he was changing into the light blue shirt the team had suggested and rolling up the sleeves that they had suggested and balancing his new camera and laptop on his kitchen table, centering his head in the frame of the screen. Okay, Ruth said. It was day 24 of the campaign. He took a deep breath. Hi, I'm Kevin Van Osdale, he began, reading from the script on his laptop. All downtones, Ruth reminded him. Say it like you're banging your hand and fist. Ozdal, Ozdal is like the fist. <laughs> Dal, Kevin said, I would not stand by. Do me a favor, take a deep breath. Put your shoulders back, Ruth said. Read it angry. It's this crazy situation, read it mad. Hi, I'm Kevin Van Ozdal. Marjorie Taylor Greene does not represent us. Again, mad, Ruth said. I mean, it's freaking great. So, yeah. I don't know, like you're sitting there watching. Are you, first of all, are you recording? Are you um, I was, I was on the, you know, the zoom call and yeah. taking notes. Um, I type really, really fast. So I, I didn't record it, but, um, but yeah, I was transcribing. Um, I actually find it funny. You and I are about the same age. We have about the same amount of experience. Yeah. When people are like, wait, you didn't record. I'm like, I type fast. You know, like yeah, kind of I type really, I, yeah, I don't, I there's, I don't trust recording, you know, right. I'm kind of old school that way. Yeah. Right. So when you're watching the scene, are you thinking to yourself, man, this is kind of, a money moment for me? Like, are you aware? You know, that's such an interesting question. I mean, I, what I did think, I thought it was pretty amazing being able to witness that. Yes. But I don't do the thing. I have this conversation often with, you know, my colleagues or my editor. I, I find it difficult to think about the writing or even the story structure as I'm reporting because I'm really absorbed in the reporting and um, I guess some writers do. Some, some writers are witnessing something and simultaneously thinking that's the third section, fourth paragraph or something like that, or, or that's the ending or something. And occasionally that is thrust upon me, like I can't avoid it, you know, but I tend to not, I, I'm not thinking, I guess, I don't know, I'm thinking more like a reporter than a writer at that stage, but definitely I was like, yes, this is great. This dialogue is fantastic. And um, telling and you know fairly dramatic i thought so right. so yeah <laughs> wait i'm gonna tell you something super obscure that i love you wrote um yeah please. day 27 hi i'm morgan i'm i'm your new assistant <laughs> said the young man with the ipad and this is what i love who met kevin in the parking lot of a men's warehouse so yeah. why does it matter that you don't just say a parking lot but a men's warehouse parking lot well, they were going into Men's Warehouse, and I think Men's Warehouse is just evocative of a whole world. So if it was just a parking lot, it could be any parking lot. But, I, but when you say Men's Warehouse, I think that you, you know, 
immediately conjure a suburban streetscape or something. And, and also men's warehouse. I don't know. The whole thing just seemed to be evocative of what was happening. You know, the guy doesn't have suits. He's about to go into a men's warehouse. He doesn't have a lot of money. You know, he's not getting a tailor per se. I don't want to brag. Yeah. Um, but uh, I bought oh, four ahead. suits last year at men's warehouse. <laughs> I don't want to brag. I don't want Yeah. Brag. I don't, I, you know, I, I, I don't know a whole lot about Men's Warehouse other than uh, I It's exactly it's exactly what you think it is. I assure yeah. you it's exactly what yeah. you think it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, this may be a dumb. Were you there from day one to 31 or did you jump in? I jumped in later. I, I was there pretty much from from the beginning, from, from the first days of when the national consultant came in. And then by the time I'd, you know, sort of explained to the Kevin's, and Kevin, Kevin's team, what I wanted to do that that was like maybe even the first or second day that uh, Michael, the national consultant, had gotten on board. So although I didn't plan it at all this way, it just it turned out that I think I was there at the it, at, at the most interesting time without knowing that that was really going to happen. And you didn't know going in that you would kind of organize it as day twenty seven, day twenty eight. Like when you first started the story, you did not view it that way. No, because you know, he ended up essentially dropping out, um, which I, which I did not, of course, didn't know that was going to happen. And I almost thought that's the end of the story. Like, I guess my, I guess I can't, you know, at first I thought, cause, but the original plan was just to sort of follow the campaign to some sort of stopping point. Um, you know, but I was assuming that he was going to, you know, continue through the election. So then, you know, when he dropped out, you know, that just became a whole nother, dimension to the story. And when I interviewed him, he was very uh, careful about how he talked before he dropped out because he was becoming a candidate. And it was a bit hard for me to get a handle on him uh, in the way that I'm used to, you know, when I do these long stories, you know, you spend a lot of time with people, you, you, you start to get a real feel for them and understanding of them. And in his case, I didn't really feel like I quite got that until after he dropped out. And then I came to understand the toll that this was taking on him. Um, and he had trouble in his marriage, but it became very clear to me that this campaign was really uh, rough on him, um, however short it was. So anyway, so that the, the, the 31 day thing, you know, once he dropped out, that was in the news. Um, so we, we had to, you know, in the story, we couldn't pretend like we didn't know what happened, you know what I mean? Cause everyone kind of knew or not everyone knew, but I mean, we, we had to give that away at the beginning, of course. And then, you know, we just realized that that was a good device to sort of keep the narrative moving uh, the 31 days. When you're at day 28 and it's yeah. uh, day 28 is like, my heart just sunk reading this, you know, it's like day 28, oh. Kevin was on the phone with Ruth trying to process everything. When there was a knock at the door, it was a sheriff's deputy. He was there to serve Kevin a petition for divorce, which included his wife's description of a troubled marriage brought under increasing pressure from a man falling apart, as well as an order she had obtained requiring that he leave the house immediately. And then day 29, the team tried to figure out what to do. Kevin was in a hotel, effectively homeless. He had no money to pay for an extended hotel suite or an apartment, and federal rules prevented using campaign funds for housing. So um, where are you when all this is happening? Um, Mm. When you hear, when you learn about all this, I don't know, is your reaction like, fuck, is your reaction, that's really interesting? I mean, where, like. Well, yeah, my, so I was, at that point, 
you know, I had been on these sort of daily Zoom calls, daily campaign calls, just sort of going along. And then there were a couple days when everything just kind of went silent. And I was like, I don't know what, what's going on. And, you know, I thought, well, you know, I guess they're just taking a break or right. I didn't really know. And then, and then at some point, my Michael called me and said, okay, this is what's going on, you know, and told me. At which point I thought, well, I guess that's the end of my story. Like, I mean, like I thought I was going to have to, like the story might be a bust. I thought his, his marriage, you know, what he punched a wall and uh, he's getting a divorce that just, that doesn't really relate to the story or I don't know. I was just sort of confused, honestly. And then, you know, we decided just to sort of stick with it and just sort of see what happened. And as I was saying before, it wasn't until I talked to Kevin when he was in Indiana that I really came to understand what had happened. And it was at that point, so after he was in Indiana, that I started to fill in the details that ended up putting in the story, like at the point that they happened in the story, like when he went up into the room and was sort of hiding out in the bedroom and texting with his wife, that came out later. I was not aware in the moment, like that day when I w- when he was doing recording that video or whatever, I, I did not know what was happening at night with him. Um, I only found that out later through talking to him. And once I did that, then I felt like, you know, as I said earlier, I, I really understood how freaked out he was by, um, you know, by what he was being asked to do or felt compelled to do. I didn't know in the moment. It's really sad. I mean, it's really yes. sad. Like, uh, <laughs> day 30. Political strategy took over as the team decided that if Kevin left Georgia and moved in with his parents in Indiana, he might be disqualified, which was the only hope the party had of naming a replacement so close to election day. And so Michael told Kevin what he already knew. This is beyond you. People are looking for someone to stand against Marjorie, he said. I've seen it where moments like this become a rallying cry. Then it was the next day and Kevin was in his Honda heading to Indiana as a campaign staff issued a statement on his behalf titled A Message from Kevin. I'm heartbroken to announce that for the family and personal reasons, I cannot continue to race this race for Congress. The next steps in my life are taking me away from Georgia. And there are two things. Again, like I'm a fan of this stuff. Like I yeah. really, I love that you wrote he was in his Honda. Like it wouldn't yeah. be <laughs> Honda and men's warehouse basically say the same thing in a lot of ways. Like this whole yes. thing, like it's like the color of this story is like gray, you yes. know, right. Yes. Isn't that kind of what you're yeah. trying to put there? Well, yeah. I mean, cause he's, he really, you know, you don't want to push it too far cause everyone has their complexities and everything, but, um, but he really was this kind of, you know, regular guy, you know, trying to live his life. He was, you know, uh, you know, he didn't have, I mean, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, she kind of had, I don't know if I'd call it a juggernaut behind her, but she had some powerful people behind her. She had a lot of money. She had her hum, Humvee or whatever the hell, you mm-hmm. know, her Jeep. She had her gun. She had a high powered lawyer, consultants that, you know, um, were kind of tied into this anti-establishment Republican world or whatever. So she, I mean, she had a lot behind her. Kevin, I just felt like there's something vulnerable about a Honda. So that's why I put the Honda in. It just, you know, these are things that evoke a, a certain life, I guess. And then you're sad. You're sad reading this story and you're like, oh, God, this story. And then you take us to his freaking Facebook page and everyone's just dumping on him. Wow, dude, yeah. you just fucked your state. You're a loser, disgrace. What the fuck? I mean, coward. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What was interesting about that, um, to interject, is that um, 
Michael, and I, I, didn't, I didn't quite put this in the story, but Michael pointed out that a lot of the people who were jumping on board on his campaign, and, I, and he suspects that a lot of these comments were coming from these people who were out of state, who had just sort of gotten interested in the race because of Marjorie Taylor Greene and, you know, that he was the guy running against her. And, you know, there was an emotional component to it. And then I guess that, you know, turned sour when he dropped out, uh, as you just read. But that, but Michael thought that the consultant, that's the consultant and the national consultant, he felt like those comments were probably coming from, from out of state, from people who didn't really know Kevin as well as like some of the people, the, the old, old line Democrats in his district. I found that kind of interesting. So I go through this a lot, like a lot, a lot. And you yeah. probably do too. When you're writing about someone like this, do you ever ask yourself, and I'm not saying you did at all, but do you ever yeah. ask yourself, am I taking advantage of this person? Am I, you know, mm. I'm going to tell this story and, you know, potentially millions of people are going to read it and he's a really vulnerable guy and he's going through some real shit. And our job literally is to get these people to open up as much as possible and to make them feel yes. comfortable and to make them feel like, oh, it's just us talking and hey, you know, like that's part of it all. Yeah. Do you ever have mixed feelings about taking someone like this and putting them out here? And putting them out there. Um, that's a really good question. Um, of course, you don't want to feel that way. You know, this is why, I guess, and I've done these kind of stories a lot. I mean, he was a little, I mean, he's definitely vulnerable, but he, he was a political candidate. So to some extent, he, you know, of course, he had already put himself out there as a candidate. But I think the best way to deal with that is to be as you know, to, to let the decision be the other person other person's decision to be written about. Like I don't think of myself as convincing someone to be written about. I think of it as being open with someone about what I want to do, as open as I can be, because you don't really know what the story is going to be until you report it, of course, um, and you don't know are two people going to read it or you know, 20 million people going to read, you don't know what kind of impact it may have. You can't project what's going to happen. You can't tell someone, oh, it's going to be great if you let me write about you. Or, oh, it's going to be, you know, you can't do that. So I just think of it as being really transparent and turning over the decision to, to the person. So the, the more confident I am as a reporter that they have made an informed as informed a decision as they can about participating in the story, you know, that the less I will feel, you know, as you just described, like, like I'm somehow taking advantage of someone. Also, I think that, you know, the other side of what you're saying is that there's something to where, you know, you don't want to um, protect people either, because that also is the other side of that's kind of condescending, like, right. You know, um, no, you know, people can decide this. And I think, you know, people often, you know, they do want their story told and you want to be sensitive. Um, you don't want to put de de sensational details in there just so that people will ogle at somebody. I mean, everything has to have a meaning and a purpose. Yeah, it's in my, it's certainly in my mind. And, you know, I try to be sensitive about that, but I also want to tell the story fully because that's the only, you know, that's the, also the best defense, you know, is to tell the story as fully as you can, because if someone is coming across as two dimensional, you know, that's even worse. Like they're being written about and then they're being written about badly and incompletely. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so you really want to, 
understand people as, as best as you can. If you're going to, you know, dare to write about a human being, you know, you want to go as deep as you can, I suppose. How much effort did you make to try to speak to uh, Green for the story? Um, I, we, we, you know, invited, you know, sent her, made a request. We made an interview request um, and said we'd be happy to talk to her, which she turned down. And, and then we uh, also sent the campaign, you know, some, a few specific questions about QAnon and, you know, giving her the opportunity, like maybe, you know, maybe she changed her mind yesterday and decided that she didn't, you know, no longer embraced QAnon or whatever. Um, but she did, she didn't, as the story said, she declined those offers and didn't answer any of the questions. Wait, I have a question. So you end it, the story ends like this. You go, um, you're talking to him and he said, uh, I'm worried the political situation is not going to get better. I worry we may not be able to turn it around. I knew Trump was a fascist and I knew he was going to destroy this country, but I didn't know how much. And Marjorie's only going to make it worse. He started to go on, but he was feeling his anger rising and he stopped. I'm trying to stay away from it, Kevin said. He kept walking, trying to clear his mind, remembering how he felt when all this began, when he was walking into the state capitol building full of optimism about what American democracy could be. It was spectacular, he said. I have two thoughts about this. Number one, yeah. when he says it was spectacular and you're talking to him, yeah. are you at all thinking, I just got the ending to my story? No, I didn't quite know. It, it came to me when I was writing more, when I got to that point. Um, I wanted, I wanted to end it with him thinking back to the beginning. And then, you know, I went back to my notes because I had asked him, um, you know, when, when I was getting to the backstory, he said that when he had filed his paperwork or whatever, I, I, I did ask him, you know, where did you have to go to the Capitol? And, you know, and I was trying to kind of conjure that because I thought, you know, that's, that might be kind of cool. Like, how do you feel when you're going into a place like that and filing your paperwork to run for Congress for the first time? Um, so I had that, I had that in my notes and yeah, it just kind of, I don't, I, I don't know that it, it didn't come to me in the moment that he said it, but when I was writing and, you know, the decision was that, you know, I, you know, wanted the story to end with him thinking back to the, you know, the halcyon days or whatever <laughs> of yeah. his campaign. And then that just, came to me, you know, he was trying to fight against pessimism, you know, and so I, I wanted to be true to that in the story and not just, although it is in many ways a very sad story, you know, he himself, he was trying to, I think, ultimately resist that. And like, you know, many people, I suppose, <laughs> I mean, right now, so he, he was sort of a, I mean, he's who he is, but he was kind of a stand-in in some ways, maybe for a lot of people, a lot of people, I think, could relate to him. Are you ready for the nerdiest journalism question ever? Sure. <laughs> Your last line, it was spectacular, he said. I think I would have, in my writing habits, have written, yeah. it was, he said, spectacular. Ah, interesting. My question is, is that being manipulative, journalistically manipulative, if I do that and put the emphasis, it was, he said, spectacular, as opposed to, it was spectacular, he said, which does sound different and has a different ba-dump, ba-dump, ba-dump to it. Is that wrong? No, I don't think so. I think that's a, I think that's a legitimate writing choice. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's, why would it be manipulative? I don't know, because, you... because it's almost like, if, let's say you said, you're, you just said to me, why would that be manipulative, right? Yeah. Let's say I had that as, why would it be, she asked, manipulative, as opposed oh, to, why I would mean... it be manipulative? It almost... It definitely gives a different sound to it, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it does. It gives it. Yeah. Okay. So you're, yes, you're, you're toying with maybe the, the rhythm that, you know, or the, the weight of the word. It. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But I, uh, yeah, I don't think so. I think, I think that's an okay writing choice. Um, but I think that, you know, I guess you also want the per you want, you know, you want people to sound how they sound, I agree. you know, too. And, um, but that might, you know, you might make that choice because you want to end on the word spectacular instead of said, you know, I did think about if you want to get really nerdy, I did think, should I say he said, or should I say he recalled? Oh, interesting. Yeah. But I thought recalled was just, you know, a bridge too far. This is a great conversation for what I'm telling you is the nerdiest journalism podcast ever. So this is really Yeah, cool. I love it. I love all these really nerdy, uh, I, you know, this is what I live for. So, yeah, yeah. Great. That's because yeah. either you and I probably have a life and this is what we live for. Yeah, well, it's, just, it's, it's like really thrilling. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who just completed her college essays. That's a really big deal. I'm proud of you. Thanks, Dad. How about sharing one with me? Okay, I guess. This one is called My Role Model Is. Wow, that sounds great. My role model is former Denver Gold running back Larry Canada because I went to 503-sports.com seeking cool throwback gear at great prices and now I'm wearing this sweet gold and blue Larry Canada gold jersey and I really love it. Like I love King Princess and anything made out of chocolate. Where are you applying? Just Harvard and Yale. Good luck with that. Let me ask you this. Um... All right, so I had a book come out about a month and a half ago, and it was about the Shaquille O'Neal, Kobe Bryant, Lakers. And um, I, Kobe Bryant obviously died earlier this year. The book was done before he died. And one thing I was told repeatedly, repeatedly, was, man, Kobe Bryant fans are going to be, are going to come after you. Like, they're not going to be happy. They're going to be really mad, blah, 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 blah. And ended up not being bad at all. And I was thinking, this is not even the same stratosphere, but you write this story. It certainly involves QAnon. QAnon has its element of crazy to it. Yeah. Were you concerned about that at all? And has anything transpired? Mm. I was aware of it. Um, and I was expecting that I would get emails or, uh, you know, I was sort of prepared to get um, perhaps a harsh reaction from those quarters. Uh, and I, I, I got a few emails from people who were defending Q, QAnon, and telling me to wake up and things like that. But, um, but I didn't get, I didn't get nearly the, um, you know, the kind of vitriol that I thought I might. And I think that's, it may speak to just the fact that, you know, people really are in different universes right now that they, they may not even, and probably haven't read the story because they don't read the Washington Post because a lot of these people, sadly, you know, they don't trust, they don't trust the mainstream, so-called mainstream media. And so they're, they're reading other things they're on i don't know 4chan or 8chan or 12chan 12chan or 20chan and and they're you know they're they're obscure websites and so so i i wonder if that's why you know that they just didn't even read it doing this job do you um i don't know stories like this do you lose sort of faith in the goodness of people in america like this has been obviously a really rough year and a rough few years as far as decency and compassion and empathy. And I'll tell you, like, I don't know if you saw this yesterday, the two candidates running for governor in Utah released. Mm. You see the commercial? I saw that. Yeah. I almost started crying. I really did. I, I know. It. Cause it was like, yeah, you know, like, yeah, why can't, and it, 
I almost started crying. I swear to God, I'm not exaggerating. Yeah, I know what you mean. Is it hard to maintain faith in sort of decency when you're writing these stories and you see the meanness, just the raw meanness of people? Yeah. What's, what's interesting is, and I'm sure you've experienced this many times as a reporter, but, you know, what's interesting is that when you get out there, I mean, I went to these rallies, um, you know, with uh, Green, Marjorie Taylor Greene's rallies and, and talked to a lot of her supporters, uh, you know, a lot of that stuff I didn't put in the story because it was a story about Kevin, but, um, but I did, I had some long conversations with people, some, some were QAnon believers and some were, you know, were not. And what's funny is, you know, when you really start talking to people, it's just like anything else. You realize people are more complicated than, than they may seem from afar, just like any place, any person. And, and so that gives you a sense of, uh, I don't know. It's just, they, um, The woman at the QAnon rally also makes banana bread. Yes. Right. Things like that. Right. And, and then, and someone who, you know, who truly believes for real, they really think that, that someone's going to roll up and, and, you know, if, if Democrats win the election, that it's not going to be long before someone's knocking on their door and coming to take away their guns. They, they really, really believe that. And that's a big priority. But then, you know, you also realize as you talk to them that they also care about, you know, health care or they don't have health insurance or they're worried about, you know, their bills and whatever. I mean, I don't know. It's just like they have a lot of really regular concerns along with the satanic cabal or whatever. And, or as you put it much better, yes, they make banana bread. And, <laughs> you know, and, and I've heard a lot of people who cover Trump and have been to Trump rallies. And as I, I haven't done that lately, but I did, you know, over the last four years, I've been to a number of Trump rallies and people will be chanting, you know, CNN socks or whatever, you know, yelling about the, about the media. And then you come up to them as a reporter and they're like, oh yes, well, you know, I think this and think that, and suddenly they're just talking to you. So I don't know what that's about exactly other than, you know, it's the generalization versus the reality. It's the stereotype versus, you know, meeting an actual human being. So to answer your question, I guess I always remember that, that people are more complicated than they seem from afar and maybe less angry, really, or maybe there's got a lot of priorities, a lot of, a lot of layers. So that's interesting. I remember when I first started and I was covering baseball and friends would say, is so-and-so a nice guy? And I'd always be like, yes, no, yes, no. And then you realize one day there's no such thing. It doesn't, it's not a real thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Also, I find, I don't know about you, but the longer I do this, I feel less and less and less and less all the time judgmental of anything, yeah. of anyone. I just don't work that way or something. I just, I'm just listening and absorbing and trying to understand. And so that, I guess that makes me a little bit, le- you know, makes a person a little bit less prone to pronouncements, you know, like everything's horrible or great or nice. Or I have a final question for you. Sure. I don't want to brag, but when I was a, a young writer at the Tennessean in Nashville, where I started my career, yeah. one time I won a Tennessean mug for having the best lead <laughs> of the month, and uh, you won a Pulitzer, and I wanted to see if you want to trade your Pulitzer for my mug. I, I, I would love to have the mug. I'd love to, yes. Serious question, now let you go. Does winning a Pulitzer change a career? Um, mm, I mean, it landed mm. you a spot on this podcast, obviously, and that's... 
Yeah, would you be? Uh, yeah, it's a better question for you. Would you be? Would be? Would we? Would we be in this interview right now? Do you take me more seriously with that stamp? I think it's really that we we both, <laughs> we both were probably in the Newsday newsroom at the same time in 2003 for a moment, and I think that's what really got you that landed you this coveted gig. I think so. I think that's true. It's the Newsday diaspora, <laughs> right? Yeah, of course. I appreciate you doing this. this is one. Of, it's probably my. It's got to be my favorite story I've read this year. I just thought it was awesome. I just want to say, we started this, and I said to you, I want to deep dive into this story. And you said, oh, there's not that much to deep dive in. And here we sit yeah. 15 minutes later. Yeah. Because it's great. It's just great. So I'm so glad. Well, I, it, the, I, I like, like you, I really uh, enjoy talking about all of this. So I appreciate all the questions. I want to thank today's guest, Stephanie McCrumman, for joining me on Two Riders Sling and Yang. You can follow Stephanie on Twitter at McCrumman Wapo and read her work in the Washington Post. Also, a reminder, please, please, please vote. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.